Welcome into another episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Colin Haas Hill as always. Ohio State football team on spring break this week, so not a ton of new news. Might be a little bit shorter this week than some of our usual episodes, but uh, do want to talk about a few different topics came over the past few weeks. Of course, want to talk a little Ohio State basketball as well with the team getting set to play in the Big Ten men's basketball tournament starting Thursday. Colin will be there for that. Of course, the big news really kind of dominating everything in the world right now is coronavirus. And I think probably a big question a lot of people have right now is whether that's going to affect spring football and the spring game for Ohio State. Ohio State announcing Monday night that it's suspending in-person classes for the next couple weeks and uh, is putting a moratorium on scheduling new non-essential events uh, between now and April 20. Uh, Mike DeWine said on Tuesday afternoon that he is advising for indoor events to not have spectators. So, you know, that could affect things like Ohio State men's hockey playing this weekend, NCAA tournament games coming up in Dayton and Cleveland. This story is developing so fast and so rapidly from day to day that we're recording on Tuesday afternoon. And by the time you listen to this on Wednesday morning or afternoon, things could have already changed drastically. So can't really get too much into that. What I can say is as of now as we're recording, what I've been told is there are no changes to Ohio State's spring football schedule at this time. So as of now, we will move forward with the assumption that the spring game will happen, that spring practices will continue to happen. If that changes, we will see. It's, it's one of those things where I don't even think Ohio State knows right now because this is such a fast developing and and rapidly changing story that you know they're going to have to make decisions on the fly and they can't necessarily make those determinations right now yeah it's i think if we had recorded earlier today we wouldn't have even known that this news from the ohsaa about the spectators or, or what mike dewine's comments or michael drake's comments he had an impromptu press conference this afternoon we would have had no idea these are coming i think that even in at least one of the releases. Now they're they're honest. There's so much news being released right now. It's hard to keep track. But I know one of them um, relating to Ohio high school sports had mentioned that you know they'll look at it tomorrow and they'll have more announcements tomorrow. It's so like this is legitimately a day to day thing where it's just I know it's hard for a lot of people to keep up with. I think it's um, there's a lot more important things in the world than like Ohio athletics and Ohio State sports and Ohio State football, especially in regards to this. But hey. I guess we're on an Ohio State football podcast. We got to look at the implications there, and and right now there are none. But you know, like I said, it, it's day by day, hour by hour. You, I, I wouldn't be surprised if anything right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it puts it all in perspective. I can tell you from from our perspective, and I'm sure from yours, we absolutely want spring football to keep happening. We absolutely want the spring game to happen. Our jobs are going to be harder for the next couple months if those things do not happen. So. Uh, we're hoping that you know this outbreak is not going to get worse for many reasons uh, but also selfishly yes but also <laughs> selfishly I mean it's it, it, this is becoming something very quickly that is going to affect everybody whether you've been in contact with anybody who might have this disease or not it's going to affect everybody just by the sheer amount of things that are being canceled at this point so biggest thing we can say Wash your hands. Stay safe. If you're not feeling well, go see a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but just just general advice. Be smart. This is a this is a really big deal. And while I, I I'm sure there's many of you out there who who think, you know, this is an overreaction. Ohio State canceling in-person classes and potentially you know canceling having fans at these sporting events. We want to keep in perspective that this is a, a very serious situation that's affecting a lot of people. And ultimately, the most important thing is trying to keep people safe, trying to keep people healthy. If that gets in the way of some of the sports that we love, you know, that, that's, a, that's a secondary thing in a situation like this. It's, but It's better to prevent than react. For our sake, though, we're going to hope that, you know, things are able to continue on as scheduled certainly in regards to spring football. So we're going to move forward to this podcast with the assumption that spring football will continue, uh, everything else will continue as scheduled. 
want to talk a little bit about some of our takeaways from interviews last week with tight ends and linebackers. But first, uh, some, some other news that came out on Monday is assistant coach salaries for Ohio State for 2020. And Ohio State is now the first college football team ever with $4 million assistance. Kerry Combs will make $1.4 million. Kevin Wilson will make $1.2 million. Larry Johnson will make $1.133 million. Greg Madison will make $1.133 million. Ohio State will now be paying approximately $8 million to its assistant football coaches for 2020. I, I believe Clemson's going to be over the $8 million threshold this year as well. But I, I know for, for some reason – there, there still seems to be a perception among some people out there that Ohio State has not uh, paid its assistant coaches well enough, uh, but they're certainly doing that now. Yeah, that was I think when I saw like four million dollar coaches, like that's just that's crazy. As I remember, I remember, like I'm pretty young. I was covering the team when they crossed the million dollar threshold the first time, and now they're up to four. Well, it's striking when you look back at Kerry Combs. When he was on staff last in 2017 as the cornerbacks coach, he was only making 500000 Now he's making $1.4 million, which, good for him. I think that's probably, honestly, one of those things you look at and say, if he had stayed at Ohio State for all those years, he's probably not making $1.4 million now. Going to the NFL, having leverage, he was in a great position. They had to pay up to get him to come back. We don't know what he was making with the Titans, but we can assume it was less than $1.4 million. So, you know, he comes back. He's well compensated. Still not the highest paid assistant ever. That's still Greg Schiano, $1.5 million in, in 2018, which when you think back on that in hindsight, probably not the best $1.5 million Ohio State has ever spent. No, no. And uh, I think Billy Davis is 500000 right around there. That might not have been the best 500000 they spent either. Yes. Alex Grinch was also pretty close to a million for his one year on staff. Uh, you know, even, I would say the flip side of that, though, is when you look at what Kerry Combs is making last year, Jeff Halfley making 950000 looks like a bargain now. Yeah, apparently so. Um, and it really makes you think, if, they can, if they're rising this rapidly, like in five years, how many, how many million-dollar assistants will a program like Ohio State have? I mean, it's risen really Yeah, quickly. it's getting to a point where soon you could see coaching staffs where a majority of the assistants are making over a million dollars. That's, That's crazy. It is. It is crazy. And I, and I mean, like, if you're at Ohio State and, and you have to compete with the Clemsons and Alabamas of the world, and and you want to get the best coaches in there, you got to play a tough game. You got to have a tough balance because, like, like you said, you do want to pay coaches what they're worth, but you also don't want to be just handing out million dollar checks when you don't have to. And I mean, how can you not look at this and think like? Man, there's a lot of money that's all of a sudden just going to the coaches right now, and the players get scholarships. Like, I don't know how I'm not supposed to have that reaction. How how can I how can I not think? Yeah, of that? absolutely. I think certainly when you when you think of it just from an inequity standpoint, that's certainly a, a valid question mark. You can also look at the fact that last year was the first time in in many years that Ohio State did not turn a profit in their athletic department, and they're now committing about three million dollars more yeah. to their football coaching staff really makes did. you think about that um whether they're whether uh, what we should take away from them saying that they uh, didn't didn't that they were not profitable yeah i year. think i think if you look again next year because there were some extenuating circumstances like the urban meyer investigation that took place a couple summers ago that led to ohio state not making a profit last year uh, so I think you know those things have to be taken into consideration. But I do think that if you look again next year and Ohio State's in the red again next year, then, then there does become a conversation about, okay, can Ohio State really afford to be paying this much money to its football coaching staff? But here's the reality. Ohio State is it, the expectation at Ohio State right now you know, you can look at it and say Ohio State pays way more than the rest of Big Ten. But the reality is Ohio State's on a different level than the rest of Big Ten. The expectation for Ohio State right now is that you're going to compete with the Clemson and Alabama and LSUs of the world. And if Clemson's paying $8 million and Alabama's playing $8 million, then you kind of feel like you have to do the same thing in order to compete at that same level. And if, and if they weren't, you'd have the critics from the opposite side saying, well, why aren't they paying what Clemson's paying? So... It's a tough spot if you're if you're Ohio State, in in terms of, 
you know, the market, when you're a top three program in college football, then you're expected to pay at a top three level. Yeah, it's worth noting, um, too, that at least some of the reason that you can hire a Kerry Combs and pay him as much and give some of the guys raises that you did is because you hire a guy like Corey Dennis and because someone like Matt Barnes is staying on the staff and it's not a Larry Johnson, it's not guys who have been around college football and, and have been coaches for 30, 40 years. Like it's, it's newer guys and, and it and allows you to pay some of those big dollar amounts. Yeah, but you, you look at some of the contracts now I mean, I think the ones that are probably the most striking are Kevin Wilson and Larry Johnson. You know, Kevin Wilson now moving up to $1.2 million, which I think one reason for that is he's now the only coordinator on the offensive side of the ball. Mike Yersich had the passing game coordinator title last year. Nobody has that title now. So, so he's going to have more responsibility. I, I'm sure there's also, you know, some some you know politics at play here. Where okay, if Kerry Combs is making 1.4 and and Greg Madison's making 1.133 and you know Larry Johnson now making the same salary as Greg Madison, I don't think that's a coincidence. That you know the offensive coordinator's been a head coach before. The guy who's widely considered to be the best defensive line coach in the country those guys are going to feel like they should be paid in the same kind of range as Kerry Combs and Greg Madison. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how it progresses too. I mean, Ohio State's the kind of place, and I mean, you saw it this year where, you know, guys get substantial raises every single year. And I think it's interesting to think about why some guys got raises, why some guys didn't. I think it, I think we can also have a conversation about it. I think it was interesting. Tony Alford was the one guy who got a one-year extension when everybody else who was up for extensions got two-year extensions. Um, but I just think this is going to rise pretty rapidly. Um, and, I, and I do think um, it'll be fascinating to see how Ohio State deals with it when, when Ryan Day – Ryan Day's salary is also going to increase pretty dramatically over the next two, three years. And I don't know if that's going to have any effect on his assistant coach salary pool where right now he's not making his, or especially last year, he definitely he wasn't even close to making what Urban did. Did you take anything away from Tony Alford getting a one-year extension? Well, I think the fact that he did, he's the, he's the only coach other than Madison, Madison and Washington, they were on two-year contracts when they signed. Ohio State did not extend those contracts. They're still on two-year contracts. Uh, so they got Al Washington. He got he actually, Al Washington actually got the lowest raise on the staff, which was $15,000, which tells me the rumors about BC trying to hire him probably weren't true, or at least that it wasn't the, in, the level of interest yeah. was not quite what it was being made out to be because I think if, if it was a situation where they had to convince him to stay, he would have been getting more than a $15,000 raise, and he probably would have been getting another year added on to that contract. Yes, whereas Tony Alford also got a relatively low raise, 18000 and got one year when who, – who, name, name the guys who got the two years. Yeah, so just to, just to run through the rest of my I, – I, I mentioned the top four with Kerry Combs, Kevin Wilson, Greg Madison, Larry Johnson. Greg Stadrawa, he got two years, and he got a $100,000 raise to 700000 He's now the fifth-highest-paid coach on the staff. I think that has a lot to do with how well he's turned around Ohio State's offensive line recruiting and landing guys like Paris Johnson and Luke Whipler and Harry Miller and already has Donovan Jackson, Donovan Jackson and Ben Chrisman lined up for next year's class. He's done a great job in that regard, and that's why, compared to some past years where his raises had been more meager, he gets a bigger raise this year because he's proved he deserves it. Tony Offord, on the other hand, whiffed on all of his top running back targets in the class of 2020. Did a great job coaching J.K. Dobbins last year. Did a great job coaching J.K. Dobbins, but his running back room is, as Ryan Day said last week, it's it's pretty close to a state of crisis right now. So I take that one-year deal, that low raise, as a prove-it deal. I take it as, first things first, he's got to land at least one elite running back recruit in the class of 2021. That That has to happen because – Really, since J.K. Dobbins, Ohio State has not landed a top-notch running back recruit. They, Brian Snead is the closest thing he came yeah, to. Yeah, and he lasted for two games. Yes. You know, they missed on uh, Zamir White. They've missed – I mean, they missed on a ton 12, of guys. Yeah, 12 guys in the 20 Yeah, Bijan Robinson, Kendall Milton. 
several guys. Uh, so I think that's the number one priority right now for Tony Alford is he has to land top running back talent in the class of 2021. I think, I think if he doesn't do that, then you do have to start to have some tough conversations about whether he's the right guy for the job. I, I think that's the reality of college football. If you're paying, you're paying a running backs coach $618,000, he's expected to be landing one of the top running backs in the country. Looks like they're in a decent spot for that right now. Donovan Edwards, Evan Pryor, Travion Henderson, a few of the top guys in the class. Seems like Ohio State's built pretty decent inroads of those guys. So I think if he does that and – he proves that he can replace J.K. Dobbins this year because that's going to be a tough job as well, especially with Master Teague being hurt, with Marcus Crowley being hurt. He's got a tough job this year, and so I, I think it makes sense. He's still the sixth highest paid coach on the staff, but I think it makes sense for him to only get a one-year deal and for this to be kind of a prove-it year for him because as phenomenal as J.K. Dobbins was last year, as an assistant coach, an enormous part of your job is recruiting. And it's fair to say that the last couple years, his performance on the recruiting trail has not been where it needs to be. Yeah, I, I, it would be hard to find anyone who could dispute that. Um, and I, I, I have been impressed early in what he's doing in 21, yet, as we know in the class of 2020, all that matters is who, who signs. Yeah, no, I mean, nobody's even committed yet. So they, yes. they, they appear to be in good shape with guys. But, again, you could have said that about B. John Robinson yep. at point last year. So, yeah, you got, you got to actually sign the guys. you got to actually sign the guys before we can go that road. Brian Hartline, he got the third biggest raise after Wilson and Johnson. He's now up to 550000 And he's actually the one guy that I think in responses to the news on Monday that people were like, he should be getting paid more because – for one, we already know that multiple NFL teams have been interested in him. There's no doubt that he's a rising star in the industry and that he's going to get a lot of interest. $190,000 is still a pretty big raise for a guy who's not even a coordinator yet. He's in his second year as a coach. Correct. Yeah, second as a permanent coach. Yes. He will be his third because of the Zach Smith situation. But, yeah, 550000 for a guy at his level of experience is pretty good. So, and, 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 listen, if he was going to take another job, if he, was, if he tried – he could have gotten more. I think what that raise tells you is it, is it shouldn't freak you out and be like, oh, my God, Ohio State's going to lose and they're only paying 550000 I think it should, you should take it and be like, okay, he accepted 550000 even though he got looked at by NFL teams. I think he wants to be here. And here's the deal. If he puts together another recruiting class in 2021 like he had in 2020, yeah. and if the receivers perform the way in 2020 they have the past couple of years, he's going to get another big raise next year. Maybe he'll even get that passing quarter – passing game coordinator title next year so they want to keep brian hartline around there's no question about that Five hundred fifty thousand for a still very young college football assistant coach that's a pretty good deal al washington as i mentioned got is at five hundred fifteen thousand. matt barnes got a one hundred thousand dollar raise in a two-year deal he's now at four hundred fifty thousand. so i think that speaks to matt barnes and the value that they think he has on staff, because I think I think he's probably the guy of all the assistant coaches last year who probably you know got the least attention that people probably know the least about. But you know the fact that they're giving him a six-figure raise you know shows that they value his contributions and they want him to stick around. Yeah, and, and listen, you just gotta purely speculate. But like when I see a raise like what Matt Barnes got and what Larry Johnson got, and there were no real rumblings, you didn't see their name out in the job market. But it does make you wonder, like, did other schools come and, and see poke around there and, and gauge their interest? Because, like, that's how people get raises in, in the world is yes. they, 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 talk to others, they talk to other jobs, they, they see what else is out there, and they come back and say, all right, you want to pay me more? And, you know, this is pure speculation, but who knows? That might have happened. Or Matt Barnes was just $100,000 better than what they thought he was going to be. <laughs> it's always about leverage. It's always. always. The more leverage you have, the bigger raise you're going to get, the bigger salary you're going to be able to command. So that's certainly possible. Don't know of anything, but it, but it's certainly possible. Corey Dennis, as you would expect, is the lowest paid assistant coach for 2020. $300,000 is pretty standard starting salary for a first-time assistant coach at Ohio State. But that's still almost three times what he was making as a senior quality control coach. So uh, he should be – to to be a first-year assistant coach making $300,000 at Ohio State. Coaching doing, Justin Fields you're doing Brian yeah. Day as your boss. That's yeah. a pretty good gig. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty good entry-level job, yeah. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. 
Yeah, it could be worse than that. Let's move on. Uh, is there anything else that you had to talk about there? Nope. No. Good. No, Let, let's move on and talk a little bit about some of what we learned uh, from our most recent spring practice interviews, which were on last Wednesday. We talked to the tight ends and the linebackers. Those will be the last ones we hope until next Tuesday. Coronavirus, we have to kind of keep our minds open to the fact that things could change rapidly. We hope we're going to get to talk to more people next week when the team returns to practice. But no practices this week, no interviews this week. Takeaways from last week, tight ends, linebackers. Colin, what's probably the biggest thing that you learned, took away from that interview session last week? Um, if we want to jump to the linebackers, we can jump we to can. the linebackers because I'm just absolutely fascinated by everything linebacker. And I think a lot of it makes sense. I think some of it just I can't process it and, and figure out exactly how it's going to work right now. And I sort of tried to write about that on uh, Tuesday because there's seven upperclassmen in the room. And I legitimately think like for almost I mean, maybe every single other Big Ten team, like all seven would start. Like, I think this is an incredibly talented, deep room of guys who are all former four- or five-star prospects. And I, I'm, I'm just trying to process, like, how are they going to fit all these guys in? Yeah, that's, that's a huge question because I agree. I think all I – think, I think it's the deepest position on the team. I agree. I mean, you, the, the seven guys you mentioned are Tuff Borland, Pete Warner, who are both returning starters. Baron Browning, who's a senior who played quite a bit last year. Justin Hilliard, who's a six-year senior, got an extra year of eligibility. He played some significant snaps last year. And then you have Dallas Gantt, Taraja Mitchell, Kayvon Pope, all juniors who were pretty highly touted recruits who really haven't played that much. But like you said, I think at just about any other school in the country, those guys would be in line for starting jobs right now. So it's a really deep group. Great spot to be in if you're Al Washington. But... Not necessarily an easy job because it is. At this point in these guys' careers, you have to find ways to get them all on the field. You, you, guys like Taraja Mitchell, Dallas Gantt, Kayvon Pope, you, you can't play the waiting game anymore. Those guys, they're running out of time at Ohio State. You, you've got to find roles for those guys. You know, Certainly, those could be your free starters in 2021. I think that's what you'd predict right now, but – you don't want those guys to just be backups who are playing sparingly all year and then have them be your starting trio next year. So you've got to find you've got to find roles for all of these guys and it's going to be really interesting to see how Al Washington plays that out. Yeah, so I think the the way I look at it is I think there's really two swing guys and it's Pete Warner and Baron Browning and it's wherever they end up all of a sudden you can figure out sort of the pieces around them, but until we figure that out you just have to sort of put some pieces in places and to think like, okay, how would this shake out? So the reason I say that is I think we went into spring practice and we thought, okay, Pete Warner had a breakout season and his second year as a starter at strong side linebacker last year. I presume he's going to play strong side linebacker again. And then that leaves the opening at, at will. And who knows, that could be Malik, that could be Baron Browning to replace Malik Harrison. That could be Taraja Mitchell, could be Dallas Gantt. Who knows? Maybe they put Justin Hilliard in there. I don't know. And then we go to practice, and Pete Warner is at will. And then my mind goes, like, what are they doing at Sam? Justin Hilliard on the first day was at Sam. Um, it, but, but I also wonder, because Baron Browning was hurt and he hasn't been able to practice yet, would he have played Sam or would he have also been at the will? And, like, all these thoughts are in my head. I'm not 100% sure how they're going to play this, but depending on where Pete Warner is, whether he's at weak side and Sam, I think it's going to be huge because I think that also is going to like determine where Baron Browning ends up. The other point I'd make before I let you like respond is I'm interested to hear what you think is I think it's 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 easy to forget in this defense, but Sam and Will are very different in this defense. Sam is sort of like a coverage linebacker. At times you play safety. It at times Pete Warner was doing what people imagine the Bullet was doing last year. You sort of have to be able to have some defensive back qualities, um, whereas Will largely is is pretty similar to Mike. I think the main difference, at least from the way I see it, is maybe you have to have a little bit more speed at Will, I'd, I'd imagine, but I think more so you just don't have to set the defense. You don't have to get everybody aligned. I think that's the Mike's job, whereas the Will, I think you maybe just get to play more instinctually, play downhill, be a, be a run stopper. That's the way I see it. I'm interested to see, hear what you think, because 
I think I've thought about this now too long, and my brain is hurting. Yeah, I think I think a guy like Tough Borland, Mike's his spot. That's yes. that's his spot. I think because he's a limited athlete, you, you don't necessarily want him at will. Can I he's, can I say one thing though? Taraja Mitchell's at will. I wonder, but I think Taraja Mills, Taraja Mitchell's a better athlete than Tough Borland. I th- I think, but I don't know that. I, we, and, haven't really we, we haven't really seen him play. I think he's more of a run stopper. I think he's at will because it allows them to have someone b- behind Tough Borland at Mike who can s- switch out with Tough Borland on passing downs. Which to me, I would project that to be Dallas Gant, and that's why like I think having Taraja at weak side, backup weak side, makes sense because. He's sort of a run stopper, and whoever's in front of him, maybe if it's Pete Warner or Baron Browning, is maybe more athletic, can defend the pass. And if you want someone like Taraja Mitchell in there against the run, you can put him in there. That's the way I'm personally looking at it. Um, but like I said, my brain is currently in a pretzel, and that's why I've come to you. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's all different ways you can do it, whether you're rotating guys, whether there's specific packages for guys. I look at it, but first of all, I think – and I think you hinted at this. Werner and Browning, one of them's going to end up at Will, one's going to end up at Sam. I don't think they're not going to both be at the same position. If if Werner moves to Will, Browning will be at Sam, or vice or or vice versa. I think yeah, it just you makes know, sense. Yeah, I don't think you're going to put them both at the same spot. I I think you know my my feeling is I think Werner is going to be an every down player no matter where he lines up whether that's at Will whether that's at Sam I think he's a guy that's going to be on the field all the time he already was last year now he's got that extra year of experience I don't think he's ever really going to come off the field I think Borland is going to continue to rotate with somebody at that Mike spot and I think you I would guess the same as you that could be Dallas Gantt it could also be because he's a senior now that you know maybe maybe he is really playing the vast majority of snaps on early downs, but they have a different package, which they kind of did last year with Baron Browning, because Browning rotated some with Tough, but Baron still mostly played in the passing sub packages. So I think it could be more along those lines, whether it's Baron Browning or someone else. I think there could be somebody who's coming in for him on those sub packages. I I, I think. My feeling would be, based on what they've said so far and Barron moving outside, is that will probably be somebody else and Barron will play in a different role. I think Barron's a guy where you know, he is at his best on those sub-packages. He's best in situations where he's a blitzer. That's why I don't know about the Sam position for him because I think we saw him have some issues in coverage. I think he's a great athlete, but I think he's totally at his best when he's coming downhill. I think they should get creative with him and use him more as a pass rusher and, and put him in some different situations. I think there's a good chance we'll see that, especially since they don't have a Chase Young rushing the passer. If they can find a way to get more pass rush from a linebacker level, I think that will help them. So I think Baron Browning's going to have a significant role. I would guess that he'll be the third starter, but I, I, I don't think that's a lock. I think... It's possible he's just playing a lot on passing sub packages, like it, or rotating at one spot, like he did last year. I think, you know, Hilliard's a guy that I think is going to have a role one way or another. I, I I wouldn't pick him to be a starter, but I don't rule it out. I think the the other big question, and and you you kind of mentioned this in a piece you wrote for Eleven Warriors about the linebackers, about. If you move Warner from that Sam spot, does that introduce an actual bullet this year? Because Pete Warner proved he can be that guy who drops back to safety and and moves all around and plays a bunch of different roles at Sam. I don't know that any of these other guys can do that. Yeah, it it makes me wonder. Like that, that to me is the number one thing that I was fascinated with Pete Warner going to, to Will, at least for the first week of practice, was that, you know, if you maybe want to put Baron Browning out there on like first or second down or something for, at, at Sam, maybe. But like you said, it's still a little bit hard to picture because I do think his best attributes are when he's doing what a mil, what a will linebacker does and coming downhill and, and stopping the run and, and rushing the passer from that. Um, but like it makes me think if if he plays will, what are their plans there? And it would have made a lot more sense to me if he were playing well last year 
because they had Brendan White, and I would have been like, all right, here's where the bullet is. I don't know who the bull. Who's the bullet? That's the question. I have no idea who this is supposed to be, and that to me is the missing piece of the puzzle. Where if you're going to put him there, wh- wh- who's going to be the bullet? Now I'll say, all right, what if? Give me a give you a hypothetical here. What if you have the mic, plus you have Pete Warner at will. If you want to keep Baron Browning on the field because he's a senior, he's a, he's one of your best athletes. I think you want to get him on the field a lot. You put him down there to pass rush, and you put like a Josh Proctor or someone else at at, at what's I guess quote unquote the Sam could have the more bullet. three free five looks. Yes, I think that that is something that could be really interesting. I agree, and maybe that's what they're doing. But it's hard to know right now. The nut, like one of the number one things that, that was a takeaway from talking to Al Washington, all linebackers, like a lot of guys are learning a lot of different positions. I think Al said a couple times, like what what we're trying to do is we're trying to put guys where they can be successful. I think that they're going to be very knowledgeable about what their guys are, what 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 they're doing on the field, and making the putting them in positions to do things that are advantageous to them. Like, they're not going to put Tough Borland on the field to defend Travis Etienne, um, uh, like, out of the backfield. They're just not going to do that. But who knows? Maybe Dallas Gantz really good in coverage. Maybe Kayvon Pope's really good in coverage, and they can do that. I think that's going to be a really key part of this defense, especially for linebackers, is just to sort of go in and out of in and out of looks and in and out of positions and have guys sort of playing all over the place. Yeah, and, and I think – you know, I think just in regards to the bullet, we've talked about this before. I do think there's a future for the bullet position in Ohio State's defense. So I. I think it might be Court Williams in 2021. But I think when you look at the, the amount of guys we talked about this year, I don't think this year is the year to do that. I think with all these linebackers that you have, you've got to get these seven guys on the field. I think you want to work with those seven guys primarily in linebacker-type positions. So I, I, I think that 3-3-5 free, free idea is an intriguing idea. I mean, we got to remember, there's a new defensive coordinator in town in Kerry Combs, so there's probably going to be some different looks, different packages in this defense than what we saw with Jeff Halfley last year. So it also makes sense to experiment. I, I think part of the reason why Pete Warner is at will right now is because Baron Browning's been injured, and I think it gets their free seniors on the field. You have your juniors running with the second team to start the spring. I think Browning comes back. They could easily move Warner back to Sam. Werner's had plenty of experience at Sam, so they can afford to experiment with him right now, and they can easily move him right back. So I don't think anything's set in stone there. Like you said, I, I think you know Al Washington's quote was, you know, you know they're all linebackers. They, they, they want to put these guys in the positions that are best for them. And you know, if you look at it, you know, Werner and Browning are moving around. Other guys have moved around. So I don't think anything's set in stone in terms of, okay, this guy's only going to play this position. It's just a matter of figuring out where all the pieces best fit the puzzle. And and the thing with Ryan Day that he's so good at offensively is building the offense around what Ohio State has. I think he did that really well with Dwayne Haskins. Then he did it last year with, with J.K. Dobbins and Justin Fields. Presumably, he wants to take that and look at the defense and make and build the defense around what it does well. And last year, it was basically everything. When you have Jeff Okuda and, and Chase Young and all the other guys they had on, on last year's defense, they could – do whatever they wanted. This year, I do think that there are some some holes that we all know. I think that the linebackers, the depth and the versatility there will allow them to get a little bit creative. Speaking of getting creative. Getting creative. Kate Stover. Kate Stover, yes. They they are getting creative with Kate Stover. He is a tight end. We that we know that for sure now. He is a tight end. He actually talked to the media last week about his move to tight end. Kevin Wilson talked about it as well. Kevin Wilson said that that move actually came about because Larry Johnson wanted Cormonte Hamilton, who was with the tight ends on the defensive line. So Cade Stover, who started at linebacker, then moved to defensive end, is now a tight end, his third position of his Ohio State career. He seems excited about it, even though he was originally recruited to play defense. He seems to think that this move is going to fit his skill set well. Kevin Wilson seems excited about it. He said that he actually was forbidden from watching Cade Stover play basketball when he was a recruit because he was going to want Cade Stover in his tight end room. So you look at a guy like Cade Stover, he's got the prototypical measurables for a tight end. I think he certainly has potential. He's not a guy that they're going to need to play a lot this year because they have Luke Farrell, they have Jeremy Ruckert. So you know they can develop him and he can potentially play a bigger role in 2021. 
the big question that a lot of fans have is why are you moving this guy who was a highly touted defensive recruit to a position like tight end that has historically been underutilized in Ohio State's offense? Yeah, and I think that, well, one thing I would say is I don't think Ohio State thinks it's underutilized, the no. tight end. I think that in in the passing game, people think that Ohio State's underused the tight, underutilized the tight end. But I think Ohio State is um, – Made, I think I think last year tight end was a big part of their offense. Even though Luke Farrell and Jeremy Record, it's not like they had breakthrough uh, performances through the air. They were just really important on the ground. Um, the one thing I'll say, like from a pers- from from a fan's perspective, like I understand why Cade Stover moving to tight end is really disappointing. Because let's be honest, like how often, even though Jeremy Record came in with all this hype, like how often do we talk about like wow. Jeremy Record made a really big play this past week. Like we just don't we don't have a lot of these discussions. And I think people were excited to cheer for Cade Stover and have 80 tackles or ten and a half sacks. And like we can all be honest here, like next year, two years from now, probably not a ton of Cade Stover discussions. Yeah, I mean and I just remember talking to Cade Stover at his high school before he came to Ohio State, one of the things he talked about prided himself on was you know his ability to hit people and you know be a hard hitter and so you know I think that was the vision we all had for Cade Stover in Ohio State is you know he was going to be you know a guy you know making big hits on Ohio State's defense becoming an impact player on that side of a ball so it is different but you know he said it himself his quote one of his quotes last week was I think an offensive guy of a defensive mindset is dangerous that's bred in me so that's not going anywhere so that tells you right there, you know, he's a guy, he's going to be aggressive in the, block, in the blocking game and as a run blocker, which is such a huge part of that role in Ohio State's offense. And he likes having the ball in his hands. I mean, he was, he was a, a very productive running back at the end of his high school career, played on both sides of the ball at Lexington. So, you know, he's a guy, I, th- I think he's going to be able to make some plays. I think he's got that size and athleticism that if he develops right, you know, he, he's got a lot of potential at that position in the next couple years again that potential as a pass catcher just potentially being limited by the fact that Ohio State doesn't throw to its tight ends that much yeah he's um I remember on the very first practice when we got to watch it like you're just trying to keep your eyes everywhere and I remember once I was just like whoa who, who threw that block and was Cade Stover like he he looks like a tight end I'll give him that like like that's actually the fun thing when you get to go see like a guy in a new position or when the early enrollees come through and it's like, whoa, G. Scott, Jacoby Cowan, these guys are sort of built for their positions. And then, like, I think Cade Stover has that at tight end. Now, I understand why a lot of people don't necessarily want him at tight end, but he looks built for it physically. And that's a big reason why he's fair because the reality is he outgrew linebacker. He, yeah, he was never going to play linebacker. The position he was crewed to play, 6'4", 255, too big for linebacker. Defensive end, he had potential, but – really didn't have any experience in that position, and they've still got a lot of talent at defensive end. So he did not have a clear path to the field at that position. He was kind of a project there, as much of a project there, really, as he is at tight end. So, you know, I think this could very well be a, a, a good move for Ohio State. And I think both ways, because Cormonte Hamilton was a guy that I was intrigued by, but when we talk about builds, he didn't have that traditional build for a tight end. 6'2", 265, and Kevin Wilson said last week that he was actually dieting to stay down at 265. So I think he's a guy that they're looking at. He, he was practicing at end in the first practice, but I think really they, are, they might be looking at him as a tackle. They might be looking at him as a guy that, you know, if he bulks up, you know, he, he, he puts on more weight. He's a guy that could help him at tackle, and that's a position where they need some help because they've only got six scholarship players at that position right now. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how he develops. I just uh, I was excited for the H back fullback look and uh, R.I.P. Yeah, I was I was too, but I, I do think there's potential there in terms of you know his size, his athleticism. I think there's potential there, and I don't know exactly what he would have been in Ohio State's offense. And and I think you know maybe some of that is philosophies change. Where a year ago when they recruited him, they thought okay maybe we want this more of a fullback look on our offense. And then a year later, maybe they've decided, maybe that's not the direction we want to go. We liked the way uh, it worked with the more two traditional tight ends last year. So I think that could probably be part of it as well. Any other takeaways from speaking to the tight ends? Nothing big. I mean, everybody always wants to do this time of year. Is this finally the year Ohio State throws to the tight end? But, I mean, until it happens, it's, it's, 
that conversation's been played out at this point. I think to me, the big question all year going into the fall if a tight end is just going to be how do they get Jeremy Ruckert more involved in the offense? Because I think he's a guy, he's too talented to not find some additional ways to get the ball in his hands. I don't think it's going to be a huge uptick because even Kevin Wilson, when he was asked about the tight ends potentially catching more passes this year, one of the first things he brought up is how talented they are at wide receivers. So this is still going to be heavy on throwing to the wide receivers in Ohio State's offense. But I do think Ruckert's a guy specifically with his athleticism, with his ability, you've got to find more creative ways to use him to get the ball in his hands. Yeah, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Like It would just be a misuse of resources if you just didn't try everything you can to make that happen. Um, and I do think they can get creative. I also think, like uh, I think what I've said before is, you know, I think it helps that Kevin Wilson is going to have maybe a bigger uh, hand in the play calling. Um, and if you give Kevin Wilson a little bit more hand in the play calling, like who knows what that means for tight ends, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah, Kevin Wilson, I asked him about the play calling last week. He, he downplayed it. He said, you know, it was already very collaborative with Ryan Day. Sometimes they'd call the same exact play. So we'll see how much of a change that ends up being. Ryan Day has indicated that he plans to delegate a little bit more of that responsibility to Wilson this year. You know, they're also – they're going to be the only two calling offensive plays. So naturally, taking Mike Yersich out of that equation, that's going to give Wilson a, a bigger say in that regard. But it's still going to be Ryan Day's offense. Yep, as it should. Running back, of course, he, he was asked about that as well. Uh, he said they're going to have to adapt without Master Teague and Marcus Crowley. Don't want to wear steel chambers out with too many reps. So that could mean Demario McCall getting some reps at running back. He said even a Mitch Rossi. Talk about fullback. They said it's a guy who could maybe get some looks in the, in the backfield. That would be a shock. You never know. I mean, they're, they're, in a, they're in a tight spot right now. I mean, even a Xavier Johnson, another walk-on, he's the second running back on the depth chart right now. So, you know, they've got to, they've got to do some different things. But they have to get – at least for this spring, because I do think he makes a good point. On one hand, you can look at it and say Steel Chambers needs every rep he can get. But you also don't want to wear him out and put him at increased risk of an injury because he's the only healthy scholarship back they've got right now. Yeah, it's a tough spot they're in. We were asked a couple questions about that, so we'll jump to those before we go back to, to yeah. basketball. We, yeah, well, let's just run through all the questions yeah, um, that's about what football, I was thinking. and then we can uh, – people who With whatever time we have left, we Peace. can yeah. talk about basketball. Uh, Grand Lake Grand – Lake Salina. Big day. He said we got it right last week, so hopefully I'm getting it right again. Grand Lake Salina. He asked about McCall moving to running back. He said, is that really fair to DeMario if he's slated to play at wide receiver? They should leave it there to get his best shot on the field. If they mess with him and switch him back to running back, he'll just continue on the same path he's been on the past four years. I think that's a valid concern, and that's one that I, I had even when we were talking last week about you know, this being a big opportunity for DeMario. I, I do think that moving him again isn't necessarily the best thing for him because I think even if it leads to more reps this spring, it doesn't necessarily lead to more reps this fall if Teague and Crowley get healthy. So I think that's a delicate situation. I, I, I will say this. We haven't been able to watch another practice yet, but when we were there on Wednesday, I did notice that when the group were on the field after practice, DeMario is still for receivers, even though Master Teague was no longer there for running backs. So I think they are still primarily viewing him as a receiver, and I think he's going to get reps at both positions all spring. I think out of necessity, they're going to have to give him some reps at running back, but I, I think that they still hypothetically see a role for him at slot receiver, and I don't think they're going to scrap that plan just because of Master Teague's injury. Yeah, I think slot receiver, the way I think about it, it's sort of a lot of – I think about that similarly to what I think about uh, Pete Warner and the Sam Will thing because him his move I think shakes up the entirety of the rest of the Sams and Wills on defense. I think Garrett Wilson's move to H shakes up the entirety of what you think about wide receiver and slot because I, I just think – if Garrett stays there, you think, all right, well, how is DeMario going to get in the offense as as an H-back, as a slot receiver? Um, what's his role going to be? 
I think this goes back to when we were talking about Cade Stover a, a week or two or whenever we talked about him, and, and we were saying, you know, it's, it's okay that he's changed positions, but, like, stick at one after the spring. It's year five of DeMario, and we're not sure what position he's at. Like, this is, this is what, what I think you would want to prevent. Yeah. Um, now, it's understandable that Ohio State views him as a, you know, a potential passing down running back, a guy who you can just get creative with, maybe can be in the slot, maybe can motion all over the offense. But that's pretty hard to implement sometimes. And I think that maybe Ohio State found that out last year. Um, going into this being DeMario's final season at Ohio State, I think that they're going to be pretty cautious and, and – and, and have an idea of exactly what they want to get out of him. But I do think that there is something to the question of, are you doing what's best for Ohio State or are you doing what's best for DeMario McCall? And the reality is, even if they say, we think he's best at slot receiver, he's a slot receiver and we're going to stick with that, there's still a chance he doesn't get on the field because if they've yeah. now got Garrett Wilson and Jackson Smith and Jigba and Mookie Cooper and maybe C.J. Saunders and maybe Jalen Gill all competing for time in that slot receiver position – Nothing's guaranteed for DeMario at this point. He, whether it's wide receiver or running back, he needs to have a big spring. He's got to prove himself if he's going to have a big role this fall. Yeah, if you want, and honestly, if you're thinking about from DeMario's perspective, if they're going to keep Garrett Wilson at slot, you probably want to move to running back because there's just a lot of dudes at slot, especially if C.J. Saunders is back. And I do think that that role that you look at, if there's one role he could play, it's different than what anybody else could offer it's that passing down running back role which i do think they considered using last year and then jk was so good that they just couldn't take him off the field that's the rule because i don't think any of the other running backs at least this year i don't think are going to be huge weapons in the passing game i think that is the role for demario where he has the most potential to, to add something different to this offense. Whereas I think I think at the slot, I think they've got enough guys there, especially if Garrett Wilson moving there, that they don't really need him there. I think he looked pretty good in his opening practice. I think there's a chance he could be a playmaker there. But I, I think he has the potential to offer something at running back that is unique. Next question. South Ohio Buck, similar question asked, is there anything you're hearing that suggests wide receivers will be utilized more in the run game as extensions to the run game, considering injuries to Teague and Crowley? I think it's possible. I can't say I've heard that yet. They don't want us to know that, so uh, they're not going to show us that. That's something they would probably save up their sleeve for the fall, but I think that's certainly possible. Again, a guy like Demario McCall would be an obvious candidate for that if he's at slot receiver. A guy like Mookie Cooper... Jalen Gill, you know, those are guys who have running back backgrounds who I think could certainly be utilized in in that way. I think that's a lot of what it comes down to is whether you have the guys to do that. When you have a Curtis Samuel, you're certainly going to do it. When you have a Paris Campbell, you can do it. Garrett Wilson, probably not. He's probably not going to be, maybe. I mean, maybe maybe it's something that they work on. But I I think that kind of depends on, you know, your personnel and whether the guys that are playing those positions are a good fit for that role. If there's if there's somebody in that H back rotation who can can be a weapon as a runner, I think they will utilize it. I, I think it kind of depends on who the personnel is on the field. Yeah, I think it's a little hard from our perspective, and I and I do think from their perspective too right now, just because of health reasons, to figure out like who are like who are the top six playmakers going to be on this offense. Like last year, you you had a pretty good idea going in, even at this time, what it was going to look like. Right now, I think you're thinking. Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, and we'll see. We'll see because I think there are just there's a lot of guys at that net, that next level. And to say like here's how they're they're gonna use the wide receivers in the run game, could they? Yes, but I think that those guys would have to prove that they're those third, fourth, fifth best options for Ohio State as guys with balls in their guys with the ball in their hands. I don't know that Ohio State knows who that is right now. And, and to be honest, like I think that's why this spring practice is really important for, for especially the running bats and wideouts, which is the issue with not having any, uh, any healthy running bats except for Steele. And Ohio State has shifted away from a lot of that running stuff with the H-backs that they used to do with Urban Meyer. I, I think they certainly could bring it back if they think it's useful, but they haven't really done that a lot since Ryan Day's become offensive coordinator. So I'd be surprised if that became a big element of their offense. 
Seattle Linga asked, what is the biggest area of growth for Justin Fields as he stares down the best wide receiver crew in the Big Ten and possibly off college football? Not not staring down his wide receivers. I would say, that, that, I was going to yeah. say, don't stare him down. Yeah, yeah. The second part of that is Seattle Linga's description. So we'll 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 let you guys make your call on that. Most in all college football? Agree, right. oh yeah. Best in all of college football for a group that has two returning experienced players. I think it's a little bold, but the talent's there, right? They are very talented. Yeah, I mean, not staring down receivers is a big one. <laughs> I think I think it's just a lot of it really is just really becoming a master of a playbook, you know, mastering progressions. You, know, you can always get a little bit more accurate. But I think a lot of it really is just, you know, making smart decisions. Not that he didn't last year. He already did a phenomenal job in that area. But I think it's just, you know, becoming, you know, even more of a master of what you're doing. I, I would think that, you know, Ohio State might add some more downfield plays that they weren't using last year. We'll add some different things to his plate that maybe they weren't giving him last year because he was a first-year player. So I think it's all just about you know adding to your toolbox, adding different things that Ohio State can potentially use over the course of a season, and you know building upon that natural ability that he clearly already has. And, and becoming even more advanced in terms of his football IQ and his ability to read the field. Yeah, and I also think just as quickly as he can um, to build a rapport with with a lot of these guys because, like, like, like Seattle Linga said, they're super talented, and like you said, a lot of them are relatively inexperienced, and they're guys who he hasn't he hasn't spent a ton of time with. Um, obviously, Chris Olave is there. He developed tremendous chemistry with him, especially as the year went on last year. Garrett Wilson in the slot is going to be fascinating, but like those four freshman wide receivers he's, ne he's never thrown to before. And I think also when you're taking the first team reps, maybe they're not the guys who during practices uh, you're throwing to all the time. So I'm just interested to see how he builds uh, that up. I also think like like a lot of his improvements are just going to be like smaller details that for us are going to be pretty hard to f see from the outside. I, I, that's sort of my projection. Is yes, I think I, that the same way. I, and I also think like when Ryan Day and, and Corey Dennis and Justin Fields are all going to, when we talk to them about sort of the progress that he's making, I bet it's going to be relatively vague because they're going to like, they're going to be small things that maybe are too detailed for, <laughs> for the general public or that they don't necessarily want you to know about. Exactly. Last question for this week from Dan Miss or Dan Moss, if, if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Be like Grand Lakes, Salina. Yeah, uh, let us know. Let us know. He asked, could you look at the Oregon returning roster and talk about that game and maybe talk about its importance for setting the national perception of respective conference? Well, I'll say that I'm like Ryan Day, as he said last week, that in March I'm not really looking at the opponents too much yet. So – I can't, I can't honestly tell you that I can do a big breakdown of the Oregon roster right now. You know, I know they've got some really good players, like uh, Panay Sewell's probably the best offensive lineman in the country. Kayvon Thibodeau's a guy with Chase Young kind of potential at defensive end. I was talking to an Oregon beat writer a couple weeks ago, and he was saying he thinks Oregon will have one of the best defenses of the country next year. But offensively, obviously some big question marks with Justin Herbert now moving on to the NFL receivers you know other other guys got to step up there you know so he he was saying to me that he actually thought it was going to be a pretty low scoring game when oregon and ohio state play now it, to me the flip side of that is i think ohio state's going to have a better offense than a defense this year so we'll see about that but i i, I think i see it my early read on it would be is it, it could be a clash of one of the best offenses and one of the best defenses in the country between Ohio State's offense and Oregon's defense. And I think both Oregon's offense and Ohio State's defense are going to go into that game with something to prove. Yeah, we can have a whole podcast down the line just devoted to this game because... And we uh, will. <laughs> yeah, like, like he says, it will both set the perception of two conferences and it'll sort of set where these two programs are going in the 2020 season. Um, and these are two potential college football playoff contenders. This is an Ohio State team that I think a lot of people are going to pick to go back to the – or go to the national championship. Um, how is it going to set the, the, the perspective of, of two conferences? Well, I'm sure that everyone's going to have big reactions to that after the, uh, after the game. It's going to be the, the premier non-conference matchup for both the Big Ten and the Pac-12. And, and – like I, I just think like there will be some pressure on Ohio State to win that because I'm I'm 
pretty confident that they'll enter as favorites. Yeah, whoever wins that game is going to be right at the top of the playoff conversation early, and whoever loses is going to have no margin of error the rest of the year. So, yeah. I mean, if Ohio State wins, that could get them to number one the next week. It could. It could. And like you said, even though it's at Autzen, I don't have any question that Ohio State's unless they somehow struggle against Bowling Green, Ohio State's going to be favored to win that game. I, I have no doubt about that. Imagine. We're running short on time, but I do want to talk about the Big Ten tournament coming up this week. Ohio State headed to Indianapolis, ended the season with a 21-10 overall record, 11-9 in the Big Ten, tied for fifth place, will be the seventh seed in the Big Ten tournament. I think if it's said that at the start of a season, that probably would have been seen as a disappointment. But a month ago, you probably feel pretty good about that. Yeah, also, like, I'll say – I'll say too. Um, I do think it, I do think if you looked at it at the beginning of the season, a little bit of a disappointment. The the as, the other aspect of it too that I don't think I would have thought before the season is Big Ten was a heck of a lot tougher than than I than I sort of anticipated. Um, there were more injuries and DJ's leave of absence that I think Ohio State obviously could not have possibly prepared for. Um, and also, I'm just gonna forever think not forever. That's a lie. For the next week, <laughs> I'm going to think back to the Minnesota and Wisconsin games at home and think, if they had won those, like this team's all of a sudden a potential, I don't know, they, they, they're a potential top 12 team in the country, something like that. And I just think those are two eminently winnable games at home that also were the only two home losses they had in the entire season. What's the statistic in regards to how good Ohio State was at home this year? Yeah, so they were 16-2 and two at home with those two losses coming by fewer than five points each and personally I both I thought they could have potentially Probably should, should have, have won both of those two games um, but per Bart Torvik which is a um, site sort of like Ken Palm um, which is um, I think the more the, the one the website that is more notary um, per Bart Torvik Ohio State has the number one home adjusted overall efficiency in the country which just sort of tells you this team was pretty good this year, and you and you thought, wow, they, they had a really nice early season. They had a nice late season. At home, they might have literally been the best home team in the country, which who, is who shocking to think about. The Schottenstein Center would have <laughs> the nation's best home court advantage. But, yeah, Ohio State plays well in friendly confines. The problem is not going to have any more home games this no. year. They've, they've got to win away from home starting this week. They, they didn't do that in their final regular season game. Had a nice win over Illinois on senior night but lost at Michigan State, looking ahead to this week. Start out with Purdue. If they beat Purdue, it's going to be another game against Michigan State. Yeah, that that one would be fascinating. Um, I think the thing I'd say right now is one thing I'm watching is just Kyle Young's health. And I I think right around when this podcast publishes, there will be a Chris Holtman press conference. So hopefully this news isn't out of date. But I'm going to just – anticipate he's probably going to say he's day-to-day he's probably not going to make a commitment of whether Kyle plays or not if I were to pick today and I'm just saying this just so maybe like as this podcast is released like I'll just get proven wrong and it can be thrown back in my face um I doubt he plays um I I when after the Michigan State game Chris Holtman had said that there was a hundred percent no chance that he would have been able to play against Michigan State that was on Sunday so if there's literally no chance that you can play on Sunday, it's just in my mind, it's hard to think like, all right, four days later, it's go time. Yeah, I mean. Is it possible? Sure. We're talking but, about a high ankle sprain here. Yeah. We're, not, we're, we're not just talking about. And this about, is two and a half weeks ago. Yeah, it's I mean, not that long ago. J.K. Dobbins said at the NFL Scouting Combine that he was still recovering from a high ankle sprain that he suffered in a Fiesta Bowl two months earlier. So, I mean, there's a chance Kyle Young's season is over. I think mm-hmm. they're really hoping it's not. And I think Kyle is a guy that's so tough and that wants to play so badly that if he can physically get out there, especially come NCAA tournament time, he will be out there. But and, I don't yeah. think that's a given. I think. You know, it, it, he has to get cleared first. Yeah, Chris Holtman has mentioned a couple of times in the past that he has one of the highest pain tolerances, pain thresholds that, of anyone he's ever coached. So if he's not playing, it's because he can't go. So if we assume Kyle Young isn't playing, and again, that that could be proven wrong while, before you're listening to his podcast, but if we assume that he isn't playing, DJ Carton's not expected back, at least for this week. Alonzo Gaffney... We don't know about him either. Mm-hmm. What do you think Ohio State's going to be able to do in a Big Ten tournament? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that their ceiling um, is lessened without Kyle. Um, 
and their floor is less than two. I just think generally they're just a worse team without him because right now it's essentially a six-man rotation. Maybe they get to seven sometimes if Justin Orange is in the right matchup, and that might be Purdue. But it's just they're they're in a tough spot without him. The one thing is that EJ Liddell has really come on recently in a in a huge way. Um, in a way where when, when Caleb Weston, maybe things aren't going 100% the way you'd want, uh, when maybe they're not hitting a bunch of threes, EJ's shown to, that he can be a guy who can, who can get buckets. And Ohio State's really been missing a secondary scorer who they can rely on. EJ's not there yet. He's only a freshman. It's hard to put him there and, and give him that role. But he's a guy who I, I think is going to be able to score against most teams that, that he plays. And, and I mean, he's, he's really shown it, and, and he's given me no reason to think that he won't be able to continue in the Big Ten tournament. I don't think it's out of a question that Ohio State could have a nice run here in the Big Ten tournament. I, mm-hmm. I think winning that rematch, I'll say they'll beat Purdue. I think they'll beat Purdue. I think they, they, they should beat be Purdue. Pretty too. convincingly in the regular season, so they should. If they play, it's definitely not a given. Purdue's always plays tough. So and it, and it is worth noting, Kyle Young had a career high points against Purdue in the regular season, is, so they are a different team. Yeah, so it's definitely not a given, but I'll, I'll give them that one. I I I'll predict that they will beat Purdue. I think that Michigan State game. I don't I don't think beating Michigan State's out of question because I don't necessarily think Ohio State played bad on Sunday. I think Michigan State was just really hot. And it was their senior day at home. Cassius Winston went off. I think they played really well. And I don't necessarily know that Michigan State will play quite at that same level in a neutral site game where, oh, I mean, Ohio State, we know they've struggled on the road. They did win a big neutral site game against Kentucky. So I think Ohio State might do better in neutral sites than they've done in true road games. And, and being there, too, it's, it's, it's different when you're in Indianapolis for a whole week versus when you're traveling somewhere, playing a game, and going right home. So I think that gives you a little more comfort as well. Yeah. So I think Ohio State could beat Michigan State. Am I going to predict it? Probably not, because I do think Michigan State is the better team, but I, I don't rule it out. Yeah, well, so I'll say this. When I was in East Lansing covering the Ohio State-Michigan State game, like, no one outright said it. You can't say that, oh, we should have beat Michigan State. They lost by 11 points. Ohio State did. But yeah, I just got the vibe when I was talking to Dwayne Washington, C.J. Walker, and Chris Holtman that, you know, they really thought that they could win that game. Um, and to me, I just sort of – I thought it was a stark juxtaposition compared to where they were in January and when they lost. And it was like, well, everything is falling apart right now. Even in their heads, they probably don't think that they really deserve to and they should have won this game. I think right now, um, like Dwayne Washington mentioned <laughs> and on three separate occasions in a row about the missed calls by the officials that, that went uh, Michigan State's way. C.J. Walker mentioned the banked in threes from Rocket Watts. Um, Chris Holtman had mentioned the injuries or, uh, specifically to, to Kyle Young. Um, and, I mean, he said they beat him fair and square. But there are also these other factors that you have to think about. And it's, you know, if that was played on a neutral site, who knows if it wasn't their senior day and you have all this emotion and Cassius Winston's just going off who knows I think Michigan State's a really great team I will probably if that game happens probably pick Michigan State but like Ohio State was in it and Caleb Wesson uh, got owned down low by Xavier Tillman and they shot 31% from three and I thought there were some areas where they, uh, they definitely could have rebounded better they got out rebounded and they didn't get run off the court on the road on Michigan State Senior Day. Like, that's an area where that's – that's a game where if it happened in January, I would have just imagined they were losing by 30. They lost by 11, and they were within five when C.J. Walker fouled Rocket Watts on a three and then got another foul, and all of a sudden it's an 11-point game, and it's like, okay, this thing's over. I don't know. I think I, – I think they can beat Michigan State. I think this is – I think this Ohio State team – when it's playing well, when, when things – when it's dumb to say, but when they make three-point shots and when Caleb Wesson wins his one-on-one battle and when they play solid defense, they're a really good team. And I'll say this. If Ohio State beats Michigan State and gets a semifinal matchup with Maryland, it's going to be hard not to pick Ohio State because Chris Holtman is going to want to win that game as much as he's ever wanted to win any game in his life with as angry as he was about Mark Turgeon's bully comment about Caleb Wesson. As a reporter – I don't root for any teams. I root for me. And when I root for me, I want an Ohio State-Maryland matchup. That would, be, that would be fun. That game will be a lot of fun if it happens. And, I've, and I, I said, I mean, I, I think – I think it's very possible. I think the thing about the Big Ten this year, as we've seen all year, is 
just about anybody can beat anybody. Yes. So this Big Ten tournament has the potential for so many different scenarios to play out. There's going to be upsets in this tournament, and you could easily end up seeing one or even two teams that are not top seeds playing in the final because the level of separation, you don't have that one team in the Big Ten this year that's so clearly better than everyone else, but you have – 10 teams that are probably going to make the NCAA tournament. So uh, I think it's going to be a really fun tournament to watch. Colin, you'll be there covering it. Who is your pick? Who do you, who, who do you say will win the Big Ten tournament this week? I mean, it's literally an impossible task because <laughs> – It's really because hard. I'll say whoever's at home. Um, but, no, I'll, I'll, I'll just give it to, to Illinois. I don't know. Illinois uh, Illinois won't probably be a, uh, a pick that – Everybody will make, but I'll, but I'll make it. I'll go. I'll ride with uh, Ao. Yeah, Ayo. It's, it's March, so I'll say Michigan State. I think if Michigan State beats Ohio State, I think they'll win it all. But like I said, I I'm I'm not even confident that Michigan State will beat Ohio State or even you know Purdue. I mean, if Purdue beats Ohio mm-hmm. State. I, I think it's going to be a fun tournament. I think you know I think really there's nine or ten teams that could make a run at it. So I think yeah. it's going to be a, a fun tournament to watch. And then next week at this time, we'll be talking about the NCAA tournament. Yes, Look at Ohio will. State. I think if, uh, my feeling is I think Ohio State, they win at least one game in the Big Ten tournament. I think they're probably a five seed. Yes. If they go on a big yes. run, they, I think might, I, they might move into the top four. I, I, also, think. I also think if they win a game I, – I also think if they beat Purdue, they, they could get a four seed. I think, yeah. they, I think that's – Four seeds have been reached. You know, if they go all the way, maybe a three seed. Yeah. Uh, I, think five, I think five seed, maybe a four seed is probably most yes. likely right yeah, now. Yeah, if they lose to Purdue, I'd pick a five seed. Yeah. So next week – NCAA tournament. We'll definitely be talking about that. Maybe we'll uh, run through our brackets a little bit and uh, make some predictions uh, since that's always fun. March Madness. I'm sure you guys are going to be excited about that. Hopefully we'll have spring football to talk about. And if so, we'll certainly be talking about that as well. So thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Real Pod Wednesdays. And we'll talk to you again next week.